Genesis chapter 9. Um, not quite in Christmas yet. We're going to have a couple of weeks next week's Christmas, the week after that, New Year's. Uh, I, I may or may not be here for that message. I don't think I'm preaching it either way. But I do have something I want to preach for New Year's. So it might be a few weeks before we get back to Genesis. So I wanted to get a little more Genesis today. Keep us connected to it uh, before we're not here for a little while. We come to another passage of Scripture this morning in Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17, um, uh, where... Uh, it's very familiar to us generally, but which is far more interesting and perhaps significant than maybe most of us give it credit. I hope throughout the course of Genesis, you have been encouraged to think as you're reading the Bible. Um, there's a, a, a great deal there that, that sometimes we, we get so familiar with a, 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 what we call a story in the scriptures, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Noah's Ark, um, the story of Cain and Abel, uh, that we can lose sight of really what, what God is actually attempting to communicate to us through those accounts. God is communicating. This book is a book of communication and particularly a book that answers the question of who God is, who we are, and how it is that that, that things are the way they are. And, and Genesis is the foundation of that. It is the beginning of that. And so as you think through these accounts, don't take them for granted, Think through them and say, what is it that God is actually attempting to communicate here? So, Noah and his sons have come off of the ark. God has given them all manner of creature to eat. And God has ordained that the taking of human life, this is what we talked about last time, that the taking of human life by either a man or a beast should result in that man's life being taken. And we talked through that last time. This is a, a command, or at least by implication at least, a command for man to create a governing body that would rule other men under God. So that a governing body identifies God's design. And when he sees that a man has taken the life of another man, and of course we talked through even what the Old Testament law does there with gradations, things like manslaughter, uh, inadvertent deaths, those sorts of things, uh, and, and we recognize those gradations. But when we think about the idea that a man in malice or anger or whatever the case may be takes the life of another man, God says that that man has now forfeited his life because he has blasphemed the image of God in man by taking his life, something that God has the right to do, Man does not have the right to do. However, God did delegate to man the right to take the life of the man who took the life of another. And then as we connected this in scripture, we connected this to Romans where the Bible says that government has been established or ordained by God as an avenger of evil. So God has ordained government to avenge evil on this earth, which means what we see here. As God says, if any man shed man's blood, by him man's blood, sh uh, by, by, by him, by man his blood should be shed. What we see here is the shadows of God ordaining human government. Specifically for the purpose of punishing evil and rewarding good. But God's interaction with man did not stop there. We read verses 1 through 7 last time. We continue this week in chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8 where we read, I'll read through verse 10. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I, this is God speaking, establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. Now, once again, within our text, we come to... 
a very important first in the scriptures. We've seen many firsts. Of course, we're in the beginning of Scripture. So we have, when we've run across some important concept and the first introduction of that important concept, we have mentioned those things. And this is the first time in our Bibles where we find the word covenant. And the first time where we see God make a covenant specifically with men. And this is very consequential. In the scriptures, because the covenants that God make in the Bible hold major sway over what we understand both about God and about how God has chosen to deal with men. Not only in the past, but on this day, there are covenants that God has made that are yet unfulfilled that we are waiting for in the future. Some to us, some to not us, some to the nation of Israel. And those covenants are yet unfulfilled and we identify them in the scriptures and we see how God is working in and through them. So we've talked already on two occasions about the ages that God has built into history. A few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, the nature of eating of meat and we traced how, how meat has, uh, the, the, the nature of eating of meat throughout the, the ages, I gave you effectively five ages. From Adam to Noah, there was a certain way in which God dis- d- d- dealt with men as it related to eating of meat. Specifically, they did not eat meat, they only ate Herb bearing, uh, herbs and, 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 and seeds and such. And then from Noah to Moses, we see God open it up and say that, that all manner of creature is, is able to be eaten, only that they should not eat the blood in, in the creature. And then from Moses to uh, Peter, we see at least in the nation of Israel, uh, Peter not being the book of Peter, but being to what we talked about last time, Peter's vision of the sheets there, we could say to Pentecost, to the church. Um, we, we see this idea in, the, in the, the Old Testament law of clean and unclean animals. And then from the church uh, to the second coming, we see this idea once again that Paul has said that God has given us meat by which we may eat and that all things are clean unto us. And then we also saw in Colossians this idea that there's another age, something after the end of this age, things to come, what we would perhaps consider to be the millennial kingdom, uh, where there's something else. And we don't exactly know what that is. All we know is that the, the, the sacrifices and the eating of meat and all of those things that were in the law, Paul says, were a shadow of things to come. And so maybe there's something different as it relates to those things. Maybe there isn't. Uh, we certainly see how the Old Testament um, um, holidays and, and such that God ordained do bear a reflection of end times events. And so perhaps that's what he's talking about. Either way, we see those ages. And then last time we were together, we also talked about this as it related to uh, the law, or excuse me, to governments. And we saw, we talked about that there was an age of conscience, and that was an age between Adam. And Noah, where man did what, that which was right in his own eyes, and he was uh, accountable only to his conscience alone. And we talked about the age of government, and this would be the age that began in Noah's day, where now there is this implicit uh, enacting of a governmental system whereby man is now holding himself accountable for what God has ordained. And then we talked about the age of, of divine law, and, and many people actually see an age between those two. Um, as well, but an age of divine law where God handed down his law from Mount Sinai and said, follow this and I'll bless you. Don't follow this and I'll curse you to the nation of Israel specifically. And then, of course, the age of grace. And so we talked through these ages and we could add to this in, in consistency with what I presented 
as it related to meat, we could certainly add the millennium as another age as well, the things to come age. And through a recognition of these ages, we can see a trend of God working in time to develop history around the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is developing history, pointing toward the day when Jesus would redeem all mankind. And we trace that as as we talked about government a little bit. We trace that as we talked about why the law was in effect, why the Old Testament law was there. It was there as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was there to point to the fact that we are insufficient in and of ourselves to meet God's righteous demands. And with every uh, added level of revelation, with every age and, and, and the expectations and the revelation that God has added to that age, adding conscience, then adding government, then adding his law, we see that it is proving something about the need for Jesus Christ and the importance of what Christ did on the cross. So in this manner, of course, we break up scripture through ages. Now, I say we, not all, do this. This is a system of interpretation that we have chosen. And I, I, I encourage you, if you want to really get a good handle on why it is I'd interpret the Bible the way I do and why we've uh, kind of planted our flag where we have at Legacy Baptist Church, watch the first several months of teaching in the Revelation series. The first three months, first 12 sermons, I believe, in that Revelation series were actually talking through how it is we interpret the Bible, why we interpret it the way we do, why we've chosen the path we've chosen. And the reason why I appended it to that series is because when you get to the revelation of Jesus Christ, and there's a lot of divergence and disagreement as to, to, to what people believe about the end times, those disagreements do not come down to, well, someone's reading the Bible and someone's ignoring the Bible. No, we all read the same Bible. And yeah, there are those people that are ignoring the Bible as it relates to what they believe about the end times. But there's a, a tremendous number of people who read the Bible and they read a verse and they say, well, this verse means this. And someone else reads another verse and says, well, that verse means that. And so we diverge on those level of, uh, th- those, those degrees of interpretation. And the reason why there are those divergences is because we've chosen different foundational methods of how to interpret the Bible. And because we've chosen different methods of how to interpret the Bible, we come to different conclusions. And this is natural and to be understood. So if we're going to bicker and argue about it, which we shouldn't anyway, but if we're going to do so, let's bicker and argue about how we interpret the Bible. And then if we can come to an agreement on that, the rest of it's probably going to fall into general place. But if we're, not, if, if, if we're going to interpret the Bible differently, then it's no sense fighting over what the interpretation is because we're coming from entirely different places, right? Anyway, so uh, those who do organize the Bible into this sort of a way, it's generally called dispensationalism in theological circles. They recognize anywhere from five to seven primary, primary organized ages in which God, through his unchanging character and purpose, dealt differently with mankind based upon the amount of revelation that he had given to them and according to his higher purposes. Now, along with this organization, this idea of organizing the Bible and thus organizing history into these ages where in each age God gave a little more revelation and he gave a little bit more responsibility, and so he predisposed himself toward the people in that age slightly differently, though salvation has always been the same, though God has always been the same, there is also another framework of biblical organization around the covenants that God has made with various men throughout the Bible. 
And that idea begins here, of course, in Genesis chapter 9, as this is the first time we see this idea of a covenant with a covenant that's often called the Noahic covenant. Noah is his name, Noahic covenant. Now, a couple of things about biblical covenants, and I'm really not going to hit this hard today. When we get to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, and we're talking about Abraham, we're going to spend quite a bit more time talking through the the, the, the nature of biblical covenants. Because when we get to Abraham, what we're going to find is that um, we're going to find that, that, that those uh, covenants factor in quite a bit more into what we understand God doing unto salvation. And I, I, uh, I have some slides here, but once again, I need to uh, work on, on that program. It's, uh, I do it at home. It's the same program, and it formats different when I get here. So I need to, to work on that. Uh, I... The, the uh, boy, it even goes off the screen. I'm not even going to show them. That's not going to be helpful to you. Um, my apologies for not having those things formatted properly. Uh, as we think through the covenants of Scripture, so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about God making covenants. We identify six primary covenants in Scripture. And I will go ahead and, and pop this up so that you can write them down, I suppose. Um, actually, let me do this because that one's, that one's uh, properly... That one's properly formatted there with a little extra information on the side. Uh, We have six primary covenants that God has given in the scriptures that we find to be extremely consequential, past and present. We have the Noahic covenant. And this one is one that is made to all mankind. It doesn't necessarily connect to the others, but the other five are, in fact, connected to each other. The Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, as I talk to you about the covenants, I'm going to give you a little bit more here uh, uh, that, that I hope doesn't confuse you. There is an entire theological system out there called covenant theology. Well, we're not, we're not talking about covenant theology this morning. Covenant theology actually breaks up the covenants very differently. They talk about three covenants. And the three covenants that covenant theology talks about are the covenant of redemption, the covenant of, of works, and the covenant of grace. And they say that the covenant of redemption is a covenant that God has made with himself, that he would redeem mankind. Then there's a covenant of works, and that's reflected in the law. And then there's a covenant of grace. And they believe that they can see everything that God is doing through these two covenants that he's made with man, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, uh, both of which are subsets of his covenant of redemption. So God has determined to redeem mankind. And within the, the covenantal system, they say in In the Old Testament, God redeemed them through works. In the New Testament, God redeemed them through grace. We don't believe that because in the New Testament, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, which tells us that Abraham was not saved by works. He was saved by grace. And as we work through what Paul taught, it was the same with David and it was the same with Solomon and it was the same with everyone else. They were saved by grace through faith. They were not saved by their works. We'll talk more about that. I might preach a message on covenant theology as we get deeper into the covenants, but I'm not talking about covenant theology today. I'm not talking about that system. I don't believe that that system is valid. But that doesn't mean that there aren't covenants in the Bible, and that doesn't mean that the covenants don't matter just because we don't ascribe to a certain theological system. And, and, and I'll say this one last thing before I continue here. Um, We, need, we, we should always be careful with systems. I call them the isms. You've got all of the isms in everything, right? Not just in, not just in the church, but in politics and in everything else. There's all the isms. 
And the isms kind of put everything into a box. So we have dispensationalism, and we have uh, covenant theology, and we have Calvinism, and we have uh, Reformed theology, and we have all of these different systems. And we talk about these systems, and then we claim some of these systems for ourselves. And what that can do is that can uh, tempt us to put God into a box of our own making. That we have a system, and we've forged a system, and now when we read the Bible, we say, wow, how does this verse fit with our system? And we take that verse, and we shoehorn it into our system, because it's our system, and and our system is like a little blanket that covers us and makes us feel comfortable, because we can understand, because we have this lovely comfort blanket over us of this system, and it makes sense, and, and we can wrap our minds around it. Well, you know, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, our thoughts, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. God can't be put into any box of our making. So we, systems are not necessarily a bad thing. We put systems into place to make things easier for ourselves because we are systematic thinkers and the Bible is in fact an organized book. So we organize the book into what we call systematic theology and that allows us to take the book and to handle the book in a way that makes sense to us and whereby we can take all of the things that the scriptures say and organize them in a fashion that, that, that brings clarity. Good, good, wonderful. But we need to remember that the Bible is not bound to our systems. Our systems are made out of the Bible. And where our system falls short, it's our system's problem. And we need to change our system to match what the Bible says. So I'm I'm talking about dispensationalism and we're talking about covenants and all of these things. What we're attempting to do here is identify what God is doing. We're not trying to put God into a box. And I, I, I hope that we don't come away from this having put God into a box um, God, God can't fit into any of our boxes. But we can still feel comfortable organizing the scripture as long as those organizations were, were willing to hold them loosely as a means by which to understand God better, not to demand something of God. Okay, so these covenants. Of these covenants, God's covenant with Noah is unique in that it's not directly related to the others. And to this end, as I said, we'll have much more to say about the other five covenants when we get to Abraham, uh, which, which will be coming up in Genesis chapter 12. But as a basic summary of those five, Abraham, Palestinian, Mosaic, Davidic, and New, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. And in that promise, he binds himself unconditionally to Abraham and to his posterity. And he promises Abraham three blessings. He promises him the one related to land that we call the Palestinian Covenant. Now, the Palestinian Covenant. It's called the Palestinian Covenant because characteristically that entire region has been called Palestine since the days of Rome. Rome called it Palestine because it is a derivative of the name Philistine, which was a way to stick it to Israel by calling the nation of Israel by the name of their enemies their historic enemies, this is the land of the Philistines. This is Palestine, rather than calling it the land of Israel. That's because Israel was notoriously hard to govern when they were under Rome. And uh, so they, Rome didn't have any inclination to like Israel in any way, shape, or form. When I say the Palestinian covenant, I am not talking about the nation of Palestine today and their claims over the land. All of the geopolitical concepts of them claiming that land for their own, we know, we have the biblical record that that land is Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's from well before any sort of, certainly Philistine uh, connection to the land, but even 
uh, any, any sort of Arab connection to the land. God gave them, God gave Israel that land. So when I say Palestinian covenant, we're not talking about geopolitical Palestine. We're talking about the region that, that has been historically, theologically called Palestine because it wasn't a big deal before Israel moved into the land in, in 1948. So that's, that's the idea here of the Palestinian covenant. Please don't see it as a political statement or anything of the sort. It's simply the label that was given historically to that region and, and that, that, that plot of land. So the, the promise of the land that God had given Abraham that land in perpetuity was called the Palestinian covenant. And then we see the promise of a seed, that, that through Abraham there would be a seed, a posterity that would continue in that land. And that continues through what we call the Davidic covenant. And then there was a promise of a blessing, that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just Abraham's family, that was the promise of the seed, but that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that is the uh, that that is realized or begins to be realized in the Mosaic Covenant. And I mentioned already the Noahic Covenant was unique in that it was not connected to the rest, but the Mosaic Covenant is also very unique. And the reason why is because if we look at those six covenants up there, there's only one covenant that was in any way, shape, or form conditional upon man's actions. And that was the Mosaic Covenant. That God said, if you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I will curse you. Unlike every other covenant on this page, uh, uh, those other five covenants, including the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant was conditional, meaning its outcome depended upon the actions of the men who were under that covenant. Now, these other five covenants are unconditional. And what that means, and we'll talk about this more toward the end of our time together, is that when God made that promise to Noah in that day to all mankind and to even, even the animals, when God made the promise to Abraham of the land, the seed, and the blessing, he, he did not condition uh, the, his, his promises on Abraham's actions or on the actions of Abraham's children. They were unconditional. He gave a, effectively a promise, and that promise was not contingent upon how Abraham acted, how Noah acted, how Isaac acted, how Jacob acted. It was unconditional. And this is very important because as we've already seen through these nine chapters of Genesis, if man is in charge of holding up his end of the bargain in order to get anything from God, man is not going to get anything from God because man will never hold up his end of the bargain because we are sinful and we're so hopelessly sinful. And this made the law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, very unique because it asked the family of Israel to hold up their end. And as we've explored already in the past couple of messages as it relates to the law, they did not do a good job of holding up their end. The Mosaic Covenant's dependence upon man's faithfulness, his righteousness, his obedience, meant it was never going to be a sufficient basis for God's promise of spiritual blessing through Abraham. So when God said through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed, initially it seemed as though the Mosaic Covenant was going to be that, that Israel would be the city on a hill and they would show the world how they can be rightly related to God by being rightly related to God themselves and the world would flock to Israel and they would say, let us be like you, let us have your God, let us follow your God and Israel would teach them how and, and the whole world would, would come into the kingdom of God, but it didn't work that way. Hence the reason why the Mosaic covenant had to go away and a new covenant, quite literally called the new covenant, 
would be put in its place. And this new covenant was promised in Jeremiah 31, where God said that he would take away the old covenant and he would give them a new covenant and he would write it on the table of their hearts. And and that new covenant would be one whereby God would actually cause them to obey him. That, that, That God would work from the inside out to want to obey God. And they would do so. And of course, this was realized through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the new covenant, like all the others except the Mosaic covenant, is an unconditional covenant. You and I have done nothing to earn it, to work for it, or to deserve it. We can do nothing to keep it. It is entirely a covenant that God has made with man that God has bound himself to. Completely apart from man's actions, indeed, it is by grace through faith alone. And as I said, we'll come back to this quite a bit more when we get to Abraham, Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. But today we look at this covenant that God makes, not just with Noah, but with all mankind. And in in, uh, chapter 9, verse 11, God says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So the covenant made here is that God would never again destroy all flesh with a flood, nor would there ever again be a flood that destroys the earth. Now, God is not just being redundant there. These are actually two different things that he is promising as it relates to cataclysmic judgment. Yes, God brought rain and opened the waters of the deep and flooded the earth, and and so he destroyed all living things upon the earth, but... God's second promise here gives us perhaps a little bit more anecdotal evidence, a little bit more confirmation of what we already assumed. That when God broke up the fountains of the earth, which we said we assume were probably along the fault lines that we find today on the earth, where the crust of the earth is actually broken up along fault lines, and that's where earthquakes happen and such, because the earth is actually shifting in those points. And, and we, when the Bible says that the fountains of the deep broke up, we think that probably... That is where those fault lines were created as the, as the fountains came out from the earth and the, the uh, super-pressured water that was underneath the earth on which the crust of the earth is kind of floating actually came out and filled our oceans and these sorts of things. And uh, thus, the lubrication is now much less, which is why when those tectonic plates grind against each other, the earth shakes, right? Um, so when, when we think through all of that process and those tectonic plates jamming together and creating mountains and creating valleys and all of these things, we understand that the world as, as they knew it, the world that Noah knew prior to the flood was not the same world that he stepped into when he stepped off of that ark. It was fundamentally different. It, it was terraformed. The, the face of the earth was transformed. So that it can be said that not only did God destroy all life on earth, but that he also did in fact destroy the earth as it existed as well. And this is one of the things at which I marvel. I uh, was, was with a friend many years ago and we were out in, in, uh, in God's creation. And as we were out looking at God's creation, I said, we, we were marveling at, 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 at the beauty of, of it. We were on a lake, and there were the trees and the birds, and there was nobody else around, and we were marveling at the beauty, and, and, and we, we took note of the fact that all of this beauty, all of this design, all of these wonderful, beautiful, intricate things, and this is the fallen world. 
And this is the world, this is the judged world, right? This, this is the world that has been judged by the flood. Imagine what it must have looked like before the flood. Imagine what it will look like when God makes it a new one day. Imagine the new heavens and the new earth. If this, if this is the fallen earth, if all of the beauty and all of the design and everything, this is the fallen judged world, what will God's perfect world look like? Now, before we move on to the sign of the covenant, I do want to reference the slight difference between the covenant that God makes here in Genesis 9 and what God had said back in Genesis chapter 8. Because if you recall at the end of Genesis chapter 8, God said something very similar to what we've read here in Genesis 9. He said, beginning in verse 21, and I'll I'll start uh, partially through the verse, um, he said, uh, the Lord God, uh, excuse me, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Notice some ellipses there. I'll address that in a moment. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So I added the ellipses there. That's just to take out a few uh, uh, pieces of the text so that um, I can fit it all on one slide. When I preached through this a few weeks ago, I didn't. I didn't just preach the part that's not in the ellipses, and you can certainly go back and, and read for yourself the things that I skipped, not trying to um, do any disservice to the text, just trying to fit it all on one screen. Notice what the text says here, that upon smelling the sweet-smelling sacrifice of Noah, as he worshiped the Lord, the Bible says that God said in his heart that he would not anymore curse the ground for man's sake or smite every living thing. So this is God making a decision within himself. And the decision that he makes within himself is twofold. The first thing that he says he would not do is he would not impose the same weight of the curse upon man from that point going forward as he had upon men from Adam to Noah. And we already discussed what we believe that means is that we believe that in that time, this is when, due to the terraforming of the earth, this is when seasons began. And because there's seasons and now there's springtime and harvest and summer, winter and cold and heat, that means that those weeds that were the curse, right? The curse on Adam was that he would, for the rest of his life, toil with the sweat of his brow against, uh, against the thorns and the thistles as he sought to grow his food. And it, you can only imagine how hard that would have been in a greenhouse type setting, in a greenhouse type environment where things grow all year round, where things are temperate all year round. But now there's seasons, which means there's winter, which means there's a season where things die off, which means there's a way to get ahead of the curse, if you will, right? There's a way to get ahead of the system and um, to start anew every year. The weeds are dead. Everything else is dead. You start anew. You plow, you you, you till your soil and you get going again and, and you can get ahead of the weeds. So that's the first thing that he determined within himself. And then the second determination that he made here is that he would no more destroy every living thing as he had done. And this is the one that we actually see elaborated on in Genesis 9. So he says, I will no longer do this. Now he hasn't promised this to man yet. He's only promised this within himself, determined this within himself. And then in Genesis 9, we see what that looks like, that God promised he would no longer smite every living thing with the waters of a flood as he had done before. And this is where things get truly interesting. Verses 12 through 17. Stay with me here. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. 
And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So let's think about what we just read. Again, it's it's the rainbow. Rainbows are pretty. The kids are down in Sunday school painting a rainbow, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. Let's think about what we just read. God has made a promise to man that he would never again destroy all flesh or the earth with a flood. And as a token of this covenant which God describes as being between God and every generation of mankind perpetually, and the entire earth, for that matter. God says he would place a bow in the cloud, what we call a rainbow, so that after it rains, which would be a consistent and essential part of human life and flourishing from that, from, uh, on the earth from that point onward, right? Rain is extremely important to us now. We need rain. So that when it rains, when man sees that bow in the cloud, man would be comforted that God has promised never again to destroy humanity with a flood. Sort of. Actually, what I said is a little bit misleading. Because the Bible doesn't say that the point of the rainbow is that when man sees it, man would be comforted. What does the Bible say? Let's read verses 14 through 16 again. And it shall come to pass... When I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and who will remember the covenant? God. He said, I will remember the covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. God says that when the bow is seen in the cloud, that would be a token whereby God would remember his covenant. It would be a testimony to God of his promise between himself and every living creature. So that while the rainbow, as we call them today, is to mankind a comfort regarding God's promises and a testimony of God's great character, God states here that his actual purpose in the rainbow is for his own benefit to testify to himself of his choice to obligate himself to mankind's well-being. And that's fascinating, isn't it? And this sets in motion, we'll talk about a little bit more, the nature of God's character as we have introduced, as we've been introduced to the character, there's this character of God that we are introduced to in Genesis. And this is a big piece to the puzzle of the kind of character that our God has. And this brings us to three points of application this morning upon which I would like you to contemplate with me. First, consider the implications of God's promise. Consider the implications of God's promise. I mentioned already, and we addressed in Genesis chapter 8, the biblical reconciliation of God's promises with modern sensibilities of environmental responsibility and what's called today climate change. We talked about that fact in Genesis chapter 8, that God had called mankind to be stewards of the earth, 
so that it is completely within reason and biblically sound for us as Christians to believe that we have a responsibility to this planet, to the creatures that God has created. We are to be stewards of this planet. We are to be stewards of God's creation because God has given us dominion. But God has given us dominion over the planet and over those creatures so that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the earth and its resources exist and its creatures exist specifically for human flourishing. That's why God made him. God has given us dominion over this earth. That means we're responsible, but it also means we have these resources at our disposal and God has built it to be so. And we talked about why it is that we dismiss climate alarmism, which states that the world is at an ecological tipping point due to humans' utilization of those natural resources. And that God's determination in Genesis chapter 8, that as long as the earth would remain, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night would not cease, assures us that climate alarmism is a faith system that directly contradicts the Bible's faith system. We talked already about the idea of interpretation, right? That if, if you and I are inter- have a different method of interpreting the Bible, we're going to come to different conclusions about what the Bible is saying. Well, you know, science is the same way, that there's an interpretive method to it, and evidence is evidence, and based upon how you interpret the evidence, you can come to different conclusions, can't you? And maybe it just is that all of our interpretive methods might not be fully sound, But it's always been so that man and his hubris and his pride has decided that he knows it's always been that way. And it's not until he realizes he doesn't know that he realizes he doesn't know. Anyway, we think along these same lines in God's covenant here to mankind in Genesis 9. That just as God determined that climate would remain in a general state of consistency as long as the earth remains, Genesis 8, so too in Genesis 9 God promised mankind directly that he would never destroy the earth with a flood. And as with our last consideration on climate alarmism, so too with this one, we considered last time that not only does the Bible mitigate against these things, but even history itself mitigates against this climate alarmism because the hottest generation on record is probably 1540, well before gas-guzzling SUVs. And within that generation, we saw heat waves such as have never been recorded before or since. And ironically, those heat waves were actually in a period that history calls the Great, the Little Ice Age. And in this period of the Little Ice Age, there were dramatic swings in temperature, not just toward heat, but also toward cold, so that even the Rio Grande River, which, by the way, is the river that separates Texas from Mexico, was freezing over in, the, in, in that, that, that period of time because of how cold it was getting toward the equator. So we said even history kind of mitigates our concerns as it relates to climate alarmism on these things, but that we don't necessarily need history because we also have the Bible that mitigates our concerns because God has said he'll, he'll keep the seasons rolling. Well, we can do the exact same thing as it relates to this idea of the climate alarmism as it relates to the modern sensibilities of flooding. For while the North Pole, which we call the Arctic, is seeing unique levels of melt-off over these past couple of generations, the South Pole, called the Antarctic, has begun reaching new record levels of ice 
formation, making a rational mind wonder if maybe the idea of melting ice in the Arctic is not as big of a danger as some might make it out to otherwise be. And yet, as I said before, so I say again, as believers, while we can, and we do, expect that scientific evidence rightly gleaned and presented properly will agree with what God has written because God's word is infallible and preserved for us. We have something much more sure than the fallible gatherings of mortal men and the authoritative postulates of the science. And for those listening, I put that in quotes. We have the divine promise that God will never again destroy the earth or its inhabitants with a flood, fully. So that every time you see a rainbow after the rain, you are called to remember of God's mercy and God's faithfulness to you and to every generation. For as we said in Genesis chapter 8, we know how the earth will end. It will not be an end of water. It will be an end of fire. When a holy and a just God, having shown long-suffering to a wicked and a perverse world for generations, finally allows his patience to give way to judgment, and may we take great care that we would be ready for the judgment of that day, as Peter exhorts us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. The end is coming. We don't know when, but we know how. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. And here's the point. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Seeing that you and I know full well the judgment of that great day when the elements shall melt with a fervent heat in the furnace of God's wrath for their rejection of his mercy and of, of his son Jesus Christ. What manner of person ought you to be in holy conversation and godliness? If you believe that that day is coming, it ought to affect how you live today. And that doesn't mean you sell everything and go sit on a hill and wait. That's not what we're called to do. It means we ought to be holy. It means we ought to live in a manner that reflects our, de our determined faith that he's coming. And when he comes, we do not want to be found empty-handed. We want to be found doing. We want to be found obeying. Because that day is coming. And that day is a day of judgment. As believers, we are not ignorant of what really matters. And the things that really matter aren't the clothes you're wearing, the car you're driving, the money in your bank account, the number of likes on social media. It isn't even about whether or not your name will be remembered by the generations that follow you. But as Solomon expressed it in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This is the man that had wisdom beyond that which you and I can even contemplate. This was a man who was the wealthiest man in the world, the most powerful man in the world, the man who had everything at his disposal. And he says, you know what really matters? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of man. And the things that last for eternity, the Bible says, are those things done in faith. And what matters, Christian, is what you do for eternity. This isn't about being hyper-pious. 
This isn't about divorcing yourself from reality as it exists. Again, this isn't about selling everything, putting on rags and going into a monastery and never seeing the outside world again. As a matter of fact, that's kind of counter to what the Bible says because we need to be in the world if we're going to reach the world. And we're here to reach the world. If we weren't here to reach the world, why would God, God could have just taken us home the minute we accepted Christ. He didn't, so we've got a job to do here. But what Solomon does say is that the culmination of all that he has discovered is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Every moment of your life, Christian, can be lived by faith in the fear of God. Husband, you can provide for your wife to the glory of God as you submit to God's authority, as you submit to earthly authorities. As you do all things without murmuring and complaining, as you manifest work ethic and integrity in the job that you have that, that you are you are working as unto the Lord and not unto men, you are working in the world, secular job, whatever it might be, unto God's glory. Parents, you can raise your children to the glory of God. As you discipline them, as you teach them, as you guide them, as you reflect the fatherly love of the Father in heaven unto them in integrity and in consistency as unto the Lord and not unto men. Yes, you're doing an earthly business. Yes, you're raising them to be adults. Yes, you're, you're raising them to go out into society. They need the practical skills. They need the practical things. You're not just going to sit them down with the Bible 24 hours a day. They need to learn some other things too. My, 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 my son can open the Bible all day, but it's not going to teach him how to change the oil in his car, right? But I can teach him to change his oil in, in the car as unto the Lord. You can shop, you can clean, you can eat, you can drive, you can exercise to the glory of God as you keep each thing in its proper place, as you manifest temperance, modesty, virtue in every endeavor before the eyes of, uh, of men, not unto men, but as unto the Lord. And in doing so, you and I can be prepared for that day when the earth will end, when it will burn up. It will not end by the melting of ice caps. It will not end by the end of winter. It will not end by a nuclear winter. It will end by the judgment of God. And I'm tempted to leave it there because that's good application for us. But there's a few more things that I want to say. And I'm not going to get any less controversial from here. So buckle up. <laughs> Number two, consider the symbol of God's promise. I've already said the rainbow is a symbol. Given to man, though not technically for men, it's technically for God. But yet a reminder to men when they see it of a God who is both merciful and faithful. Who is merciful and faithful in the face of, a, of humanity's wickedness and perversion of his intent and his design. So much so that he actually destroyed the earth. And yet... In that destruction, he had mercy upon humanity. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God spared humanity from utter destruction. And then God puts his bow in the sky to promise that he, that, that he will never again do such a thing. It's a testimony of God's grace. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness. That humanity might continue until the coming of the Savior who would pay for their sins and secure for them the opportunity for redemption. But this beautiful symbol of God's mercy and faithfulness has been repurposed in our culture, hasn't it? So that when you and I see a rainbow, we don't naturally think of God and his faithfulness and his mercy upon a rebellious world. We actually think of a rebellious world. 
we think of a subset of the population who have taken the symbol of divine faithfulness and mercy and used it instead to symbolize their defiance of God's design. Spitting upon his mercy and trying his long-suffering. Now, as we speak to this community, it's now reflexively called the LGBTQ plus community, which we have already addressed in part in Genesis chapter 2, and we will address significantly more thoroughly in Genesis 19 when we come to Sodom and Gomorrah. I remind you of two things. First, we all have sinful tendencies which manifest themselves in our lives. Things which are 100% natural to us as sinful men and women, but which are nevertheless completely outside of God's design. Some of us are tempted to lie where others of us don't really have that struggle. But among those who struggle with lying, the one thing that we cannot say is just because it is natural to him, that means it's normal and okay. No, lying is wrong. It is contrary to the truth. And God is truth. Thus, it is contrary to God. It's contrary to God's design. That makes it sin because that's what sin is. No matter how natural it is to me to lie, it's not normal. And it's not right before God. Many of us will struggle with sexual lust at some point in our lives, especially the men. Now, it is 100% natural for men to be visually attracted to women and to the things, well, things as well, but to lust after these things visually. That is 100% natural for a man. As a matter of fact, we tend to get a little concerned if a man doesn't start manifesting some of those natural signs of interest and lust and, and, and such, right? Because that's so, it's so normative. But just because it's normal doesn't mean, or just because it's natural, excuse me, doesn't make it normal or right before God, right? Just because it's something that is natural doesn't make it right. Sexual lust is wrong. It is contrary to the nature of faithfulness and integrity. So it's contrary to God. It's contrary to God's design, and thus it is sin, no matter how natural it is. And some struggle as a subset of sexual lust with same-sex attraction. Now, in this case, the Bible does not present it as natural. As a matter of fact, the Bible presents it as unnatural, but it exists in the world nonetheless, and our society now regards it as natural. And even if it were so, let's just assume society's uh, uh, assumption for a minute, and say, okay, it's natural. Which the Bible says it's not. But even if it were so, just because it's natural does not make it normal or permissible before God. Homosexuality, as the Bible presents it, is wrong. It scorns God's intent and design in creation of man and woman. It scorns, his crea- it, it, it scorns his intent and design in the institution of marriage as a procreative union. We talked about that in Genesis 2. It utterly blasphemes the union of a man and a woman as a picture of Christ and his bride, which is the church. And so it is contrary to God. It is contrary to God's design. And it is thus sin, no matter how natural it might be considered. And as Christians, we understand that all men are sinners that all have fallen short, that some struggle with lying and some struggle with lusting and some struggle with intemperance and some struggle with same-sex attraction, and we know them all to be sin by God's standard. 
but we also know them all to be under the blood of Christ. So that the homosexual man who is struggling with these impulses to sin is just as much a sinner as any other sinner, but is no more a sinner than any other sinner in that sense. And the response to the homosexual is the same response to the liar or the same response to the man struggling with intemperance or the same response to a man struggling with lust. It's to love them as Christ loves you, to be patient with them as Christ is patient with you, but also to be truthful with them because there is no love that is outside of truth. You're not loving someone if you're not telling them the truth. We cannot call right what God has called wrong. We cannot call truth what God has called perversion. Now, that wasn't supposed to be the objective of the second point this morning. But because it's such an issue, there's such a controversy in our age surrounding it, it's important to address lest we misunderstand or lest we misapply. We do not treat the the person who's struggling either with homosexuality or we do not uh, treat the person who's struggling uh, with, 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 with the, the proclivities of today's modern religious sensibilities through transgenderism. We do not treat those people as lepers. And this is something that the church has unfortunately done in times gone by because it is something that the Bible regards as, as it were, unnatural. We have said, well, these people are thus outside of the norm and thus they are lepers. They are outcasts of society. They are outcasts of the church. They are outcasts of our fellowship. And the Bible doesn't give us leave to treat anyone that way. We recognize that it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. And my intention, the intention of my point this morning is this. Don't allow the perversion of the rainbow in society to strip you from the joy of what that beautiful symbol is intended to represent. Let the rainbow remain for you what God intends it to be, a testimony of a God who, for no reason other than his own goodness, his love for you, in spite of your many sins, pours out his mercy upon you as he does on all mankind and has from generation to generation been faithful to his beloved creation even though we have so often not been faithful to him. And that's the point. The point is, don't allow the symbol to be stripped from its meaning in your heart and in your mind. The world is going to do what the world is going to do. But when I read my Bible, the rainbow is a symbol of God's faithfulness and mercy, of God's love and of his grace. And it will be that in my mind, and it will always be that in my mind. And this brings me to the final point today. Consider the God behind the promise. The kind of God Genesis has presented to us since Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw him presented as a God of order, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. We discussed what each of those meant back then. He's a relational God, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He's a just God, bringing upon mankind the consequences of their wickedness and sin, not able to just overlook their sin. God has never been able to just overlook sin because he is just. But he is also a merciful and long-suffering God, so that he clothed Adam and Eve with skins after they had sinned against him. He made promises of their redemption. And then there were some 2,000 years between the fall of man to sin and the cup of God's long-suffering overflowing into judgment, the judgment of the flood. 
Above all, however, we understand him to be a kind God. He is a God who, after the world was completely overcome with violence and wickedness, poured his grace upon Noah. He is a God who, for no reason other than his determined goodness, made a promise of perpetual faithfulness to every generation of mankind. And he put that bow in the sky, not to remind us of that promise, but to remind himself of that promise, so that every time the God who sits upon the circle of the earth sees a rainbow after the rain, he is reminded of his determination to show mercy, to be faithful, and to love his creation. Consider the God of Genesis among the other so-called gods of this world. Gods who can only be bothered to give anything to a man when first he has done enough for that God. Not the God we serve. God bound himself to man without any conditions. They're gods of chaos. Ours is a God of order. Theirs are gods of anger. Ours is a God of kindness. What other God in any world system would condescend to men of such low estate? would elevate the lowest among us? What other God in any religious system would bind himself to men who by design deserve, they they ought to serve him, but he does not make that a condition of his binding, of his goodness? Truly, there is no other God like our God. And Genesis 9 makes that abundantly clear. And truly, while among the gods of this world, The idea that the creator would enter into his creation in love in order to redeem that creation from the consequences of his own rebellion is an absurdity that falls completely outside of the character of the gods that they worship. From the very beginning of Genesis, this is the character of the God that's been presented to us. So that when, thousands of years later, as we are coming to this week, this next Sunday... So when we read about this idea that God was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we say, what is it? Amazing love. What is this love whereby God would send his only begotten son, whereby God himself would be made flesh and he would come in the form of a man and he would preach and he would seek to redeem and he would then die on the cross to save us from our sins. And in all other systems, all other gods, they say that doesn't make sense for my God, but it makes entirely It makes 100% sense for our God. It is 100% consistent with the God of Genesis that he would do that, isn't it? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, he killed an innocent lamb that he might clothe them. Because when all of the world was to be judged, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because after that, when God looked upon the earth and he smelled that sweet-smelling savor of Noah's worship, he said, I will put my bow in in the clouds and I will never again destroy man in the way I did before because he's merciful, because he's loving, Because he's gracious. Is there any doubt that the God who clothed Adam and Eve in the garden, who placed his grace upon Noah, who gave us this rainbow, is there any doubt that that same God would be compelled to give the ultimate gift, to pay the ultimate price in himself? See, because he made a covenant with himself that he would no longer destroy the earth with a flood. He put a rainbow in the sky for himself. Is it any surprise then that he would in himself go out of his way to die on the cross to save us from our sins? To this end, may the rainbow after the rain become for us at Legacy Baptist Church something very special. 
May it not just remind us of God's faithfulness as it relates to not flooding the earth, but may it remind us of the character of a God who extended that character all the way thousands of years later to when a little baby would be born in a manger who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And how that baby would grow to be a man and how that man would preach righteousness but then would die on the cross to redeem mankind unto himself. That where he is, that would be in heaven, we may one day be also. And may it testify to us of this ever-consistent, merciful, and kind God who culminated all of that mercy and all of that grace in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. May we never forget it. And may it live as a constant memorial in our hearts as it is in the sky after the rain of a God who loves you so very much. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.